1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get
0: started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As you probably know, I've always been fascinated by the medieval period, so I jumped at the chance to talk to Eleanor Yeniger about what life was really like in the Middle Ages what the people must have been like, and what they can tell us about the way we live today. Welcome to Future Imperfect. What do you think modern people in particular get very wrong about the medieval age? And what do we make mistakes about in particular as far as you're concerned?
1: I think that the biggest problem that we have in terms of the way we relate to medieval people is by thinking, A, they are very different from us, and B, they're stupid. That's kind of the biggest thing. So we are very much, you know, what I always say is that if I ever meet the ghost of Voltaire, I will fight him because (laughs) a lot of this has to do specifically with, you know, ideas from the Enlightenment and Voltaire in particular was on a big crusade and he's like, the church is very bad. The church is very evil. And anyone who ever, ever was a Catholic was stupid and bad and wrong for going along with Catholicism, essentially. And of course, one of the major features of the medieval period is that, you know, to be a Christian in Western Europe, I mean, obviously not in Constantinople, is to be a Catholic. And so therefore, you can just write them off, like never a thought entered their minds. And they're often kind of placed in opposition with, for example, Roman people. And it's like, oh, stuff was great in the Roman period. Everyone was very smart. It's absolutely brilliant. And then the Middle Ages hit, everyone forgets everything and becomes an idiot. And it's just not true. And in fact, a lot of the things that we like to pick medieval people for and say, oh, well, you can tell that they're stupid because... They believe in humoral theory. I'm like, homeboy, Galen came up with humoral theory. All the Romans believe in humoral theory. There wasn't like workable medicine. Workable medicine doesn't come along until the 19th century. So maybe be a little kinder to people for believing that. If you want to be that mad at anyone in the Tudor period as well, go for it. But why is it that we focus on medieval people? Having said that, there's obviously a lot of ways which they are different to us because... Part of the reason that those criticisms stand really well is, you know, they've got a completely different way of thinking about um, knowledge. For example, so you know, they kind of see um, knowledge or learning as a cumulative process over time between all people. You know, the phrase "standing on the shoulders of giants" is a medieval one, so it comes from the idea that well, there's the ancient philosophers, and we can get where we can get because they've already done this work, and we can see that. So. Systems of knowledge don't seek to kind of rewrite anything. They seek to build. So they're always assuming that there's a bedrock of what's correct, and then you simply build on top of that, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. But we, in an era where we've really changed the way that we think about knowledge, you know, we are saying that you have to consistently say, now, is that true? Go back over and over and over again and double check that this thing is correct. And sometimes you tear down an entire field of knowledge because you say, that's not correct anymore. No, sorry, we've got this proof over here. We look at medieval people and say, well, that's nonsensical. I don't know how you could relate to knowledge like that. But what I try to remind myself of is that a lot of knowledge now is still received. You know, for example, I know that germ theory is real because some scientists have told me germ theory is real. And I've just said, right, you are. Fantastic. Uh, Little bugs on everything, is it? Great. Got it. Fine. Moving on with my life. You know, I don't go check that. So there are still some elements that are, you know, very similar about our life, but we just don't think about things in quite the same way. And I think that's a huge cultural shift, really.
0: I did a a video once on the map of Mundi, which was really interesting because this was a fascinating mind map in many ways. I mean, people say, oh, it's not a very accurate map, but it's actually geographically accurate in certain areas in the local area, the sort of Western Mm -hmm. Europe. And it gets gets more and more odd, more and more mythologically entwined the further away it gets. I mean, they, they put Jerusalem right in the middle of it because their worldview was Jerusalem was it. And then the further east, you start to, which is up on the map of Mundi, you get to heaven eventually, literally you get to heaven, mm-hmm. and there's heaven and hell and gates, sinners and everything. And so this mapper was part atlas, but also part reference for mythologies. It's got what we would call real mythologies. It's got um, the golden mm-hmm. fleece, and it's got all these things. But it's also got what they considered possibly to be mythology, like... The Red Sea, which was Mm -hmm. colored red because none of the people that made it, and it's called the (laughs) Red Sea, so presumably it's red, which is interesting. And then it's got a little, it's got the path of the Israelites wandering for 40 years, a sort of squiggle, roughly where they thought it was. And it's got mythical beasts as well, and some real beasts. And so, this sort of melange of real world and it getting the further physically away from you, the more mythology sort of takes over, as we understand it, is fascinating. Mm -hmm.
1: It's a really interesting thing. Sorry to just jump in. I'm so excited because I think you've you've really uh, got it nailed on the head here because what the map of Mundi kind of does, you're right. It's not a, a thing that you could take and say, okay, well, that's it. I'm going to get in a boat and sail somewhere, but that's not what it's intending to do. So like a map of Mundi is doing exactly what it is you're saying here, where it's bringing together, you know, well, here's what we know about what actual geography is. And here's where that makes sense in our cosmological understanding of the world. And, you know, if you are some guy from, let's say, northern Germany, right, to you an elephant is every bit as mythological as, say, a who or the guys you'll see on Mapamundis and their faces in their tummy. They don't have a head. Or there's the skiopods who live in Africa and they have one giant foot that they jump around on and they will lay down and use it to shade themselves from the sun. And who's to say which of those things are real and not if you've never left the continent of Europe, you've maybe never left Northern Europe, right? But what it does is it positions Europeans in terms of how they see the world around them. And more specifically, really, you know, they don't have a concept of being Europeans. They have a concept of being Christians. And they say, well, this is what the world is like. Here's how land works. Here's how, again, the mythology is all there, right? Because they very much like to have all of the Greek mythology, the Roman mythology. They're they're going to take all of that, right? But they're just going to put some God on top of it, right? So you can have the golden fleece, but then you also have to have heaven to be like, but just to be clear, we are not endorsing Zeus, you know, something like that. So this is how you bring all of history together along with theological worldviews in order to have a map of how Christians see themselves in the world. It's not a map of the world per se, but it is a map of society in, in another and more interesting way, I mm. would argue.
0: Yes. I sometimes liken it to a sort of almost a mind map um, when you're studying mm. a subject and you sort of, the subject's in the middle and you can draw little lines off it. And some of them are tiny details. Some of them are big sections. And and of course, there is a slightly more practical side of it as well, which was, it was a tourist attraction. Yes, It was a way of visiting places without visiting them obviously cathedrals needed money and there's an awful lot of investment in physical investment in cathedrals and obviously mm. they're praying for people's spirituality but you also needed money and as yeah. more things you had there, there was a, I think it was at hereford cathedral there's a there's a shrine of uh, saint thomas there who cured wounds and you could stick a wounded limb into the shrine to get it oh. cured you could buy a wax model of your bad foot And take it into the thing and hang it next to the sanctuary and pray for it. And also then you could go and have a look at the map of Mundi on your way and pay some money. It was almost like a theme park, a religious Mm. theme park in many ways. So... There's obviously the spiritual side of it, but there's also the journey and the more prosaic souvenirs. And as you know, they, they souvenirs are really important for the medieval well, yes, mind.
1: Medieval people do travel. You know, there is this tendency to think, well, you know, you're born on a farm and you die on a farm. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, people go on pilgrimage all the time and really normal, average people go on pilgrimage. Now... I am not here to tell you that every single person makes it to Jerusalem, which is everybody's goal. But, you know, you might make it to the local cathedral or not the local cathedral, right? You might make it if you're from Hertfordshire, you might make it to Canterbury, for example. And that is what is so great about having a map of Mundi, too, because, you know, you say you've gone on this pilgrimage of a couple hundred miles, you know, and here you are spring break. Woo, You're having a great time. And then you get to see a map of Mundi as well. And you're like, yes, I'm very worldly. I am connected in with the conception of travel. This is what the world means to me. And I think it's also really interesting when we think about like the little wax feet and stuff like that, is that this is also something that uh, medieval people have in common again with Romans, which is that um, Romans had the exact same medical practice, which is like, oh, is there something wrong with you? You should go pray to a god. And we have lots of little uh, kind of plaster body parts and things that you would go and you would leave them at whatever shrine it was and have a little prayer so there isn't really a huge difference <laughs> in terms of mm, yeah medicine not so workable so you know prayer is as good as anything else yeah they, they, <laughs>
0: they were quite good at the um well not good but they had practical battlefield surgery and things like that but i think mm-hmm. for chronic things like bad yeah. back or anything like, that, i don't think there was much they could do about it but apart from no. pray. But for things like slashes to the face and the arm and arrow wounds, there's quite a lot of practical experience.
1: Yes, it's really interesting. Surgery is the thing they're quite good at. They can do ocular surgery. They can do surgery on rectal fistulas, which is extraordinarily difficult. They can do all kinds of battles. They can reset a bone. They can do the sort of practical if you need to put two things back together. They can figure that out really well. But then, if you get any kind of bacterial disease, mm. you know, your guess is as good as any. I,
0: I often think about it as, as a little bit like medical craft skills. They're actually quite good practical skills they've got. They, you know, they can s- stitch up a person because a lot of people had physical skills that uh, perhaps in decline today with a few notable exceptions that a lot of people don't do these things for themselves because they don't need to. Mm-hmm. Whereas back in the medieval period, and of course, the medieval period is a very long period of time. So we, we're, we're yeah. horribly generalizing when we talk about what's medieval. Yes,
1: yes, that's right. You know, I'm, I'm, we're just doing a quick 1100 years. It's fine. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and, and I think craft skills and awareness of what bodies were like came with the territory if you were butchering your own meat you kind of get an understanding of what's inside animals and probably inside people as well and um mm. you know sex sexuality and childbirth was incredibly risky and infant mortality was surprisingly high and you know so the the tragedy of life and the physicality of it i think was a was an ever-present thing and i think apart from a few places today in the world One of the biggest things is the realization that most children in the Western world anyway will grow to adulthood, whereas it was probably 50-50 in the medieval period.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. That's one of the biggest differences. And it's even when we talk about um, infant mortality, that's really a 20th century thing. It wasn't until the 20th century that we really tackled it. We do see things get slightly better. But, you know, go to any of the Magnificent Seven here in London and see the number of small children who are buried, you know, and and they're Victorian. But yes, it is interesting as well because infant mortality is extraordinarily high in the medieval period. And that gives people a really skewed idea about life expectancy as well. Because, you know, one of the big myths I hear over and over again is that, um, oh, you would be an old man if you were 32 in the medieval period. And we're like, no, because what the people are doing is they will hear the average life expectancy and the average life expectancy works out to be about 35 or so. But that's because if 50 percent of all people die as infants, so they're at an age of zero And then half of the population has a zero. And so what does that mean if we're doing our averages? And actually, if you survive childhood, and uh, for women, if you survive childbirth, so life expectancy is a little bit lower, oftentimes for women, because childbirth is extraordinarily dangerous, then you can live into your seventies and that's no one's surprised by that at all whatsoever. It's, it's not remarkable. Um, you know, it's remarkable if someone lives into their nineties, which also happens and everyone's like, check him out, 90 year old, you know, like that's a big deal, but there is an expectation about the cycles of life and that people will make it to their seventies, but it becomes skewed by how extraordinarily high infant mortality is. But again, that's not a specific hallmark of the medieval period in particular. Again, you're going to find that among ancient Greeks. You're going to find it among ancient Romans. Children, especially small children, until very recently, were very fragile things. And, you know, thank God for inoculations, essentially. It's made a huge yes. difference.
0: And one of the other things I think that the media, and the, in the broadest sense of the word, is quite responsible for is this idea that the medieval period is muddy. Always money. Uh, everybody wears leather, which, which you know, is, is an unusual type of. Yeah, you know, some people did wear leather, but not the way they yeah, wear it in but... um, TV shows. <laughs> and everything was sort of subdued in color. And one of the things that I've found in my studies is the absolute obsession and love of color and bright color in a way that is completely mm-hmm. unfamiliar to us today.
1: Yeah, we would think that medieval tastes are excessively gaudy, is what we would think. They were just basically, if they had a surface, they were like, I'm putting a mural here, this is what I'm doing, you know. So, it's interesting because a lot of this comes to us because the edifices that we still have that are medieval are often castles or cathedrals, and tastes have changed over time. So, what happened a lot of times is that all of these residences would be plastered on the inside. So you build the stone walls and then you plaster them and then you take the plaster and you paint all over it and you paint it all kinds of different colors and you put some murals on it. So we know, for example, from written records, that I think that Notre Dame used to be like bright yellow inside with all kinds of paintings all over. And this would be very, very common. And sometimes we can have records saying, Oh yeah, it's painted like this because someone will have gone to the cathedral or the castle and they'll say, this is how it looked. But obviously uh plaster kind of sloughs off over time, and tastes had changed too. But also the way that our relationship to the past has changed. So for example, um it's the same the same is true of uh Roman statues. We think of them as being these white marble things. They were all extraordinarily brightly painted in this way that we would not appreciate. And to the point where there was a specific Victorian interest in both medieval and Roman things. And Victorians would go get a hold of a Roman statue and be like, what's all this paint? Get this off of here. And they would, you know, strip to make it what it looks like in their head. And the same thing happens sort of with medieval buildings is if the plaster isn't in particularly good nick, then everyone will say, get that off of here. I'm trying to see, you know, the medieval stone. I want, not let you know the Gothic experience, but that's not the Gothic experience. Any person who most people are doing their own kind of like weaving and dye work and making their own cloth in their cottages, they're growing their own pigments and they're like, I've got a yellow dress, you know, like yellow is actually one of the pigments that is easiest for people to make. And so a lot of clothes are blue, a lot of clothes are yellow, Um, most clothes are colourful. I often point people in the direction of, uh, you know, our best place for things like this are 16th century paintings. So it's not necessarily medieval. It, it's more early modern. But if you look at kind of like feast scenes of peasants, for example, you know, wedding scenes or or parties of any sort of kind, you'll see all of the peasants. They're, they're dressed in red. They're dressed in yellow. They're dressed in blue. And there's not a single kind of brown dress in sight. But the way we think about it is it's like a stone wall that's dripping water. And then, you know, someone in filthy rags underneath it. And it's just not how the world was, you know.
0: No, but it's a very pervasive image. And I've done a few bits and pieces of this film extra and sometimes asked to bring my own clothing, my own reenactment mm. clothing. And I turn up and they're looking at it going, uh, they didn't have that bright blue. They, they did. This is actually woad. This they is really actually did, yeah. The woad, yeah. And <laughs> I wouldn't have combined it. Yeah, they would. We actually have paintings. So there are people, there are soldiers in red and white Hose, basically men's stockings. They're red and white, and they're going to war with one leg red and one leg white. In some cases, Mm -hmm. they're split up into red and blue, and you have to look at the slightly post-medieval, but just the Landschnechts and what they were doing with their absurd, the doppel soldiers. They were paid twice as much, and they spent their money on fashion, and they were literally going to war with enormous, brightly coloured hats.
1: I love see. I love this because um, you'll see in uh, the 14th century one of the reactions to the plague that some, not all, but some preachers have. So uh, Bishop Thomas Brinton, who's down in Rochester, he says that the, one of the reasons why everyone is suffering from the plague is because everyone is dressing too sexily. And uh, he's like, guys are just walking around in these very brightly colored tights and their shoes are so pointy. And you need to stop that because this is just too sexy. Why are your clothes so bright? Why are your shoes so pointy? Why are your hose so tight? And it's this whole world where, you know, that is so common. You know, Rochester is a fairly good sized town, but it's, you know, it's not Paris or something. But, you know, so it's, it's... you you have this at every level of society. People love to dress up. They love bright colors and they love fashion. You know to the point that fashion is one of the first things that you know when people start getting a little bit more money for fashion. This is the sort of thing that royals are like. We got to crack down on this. These people are getting too fancy. You cannot tell the difference between them and us, and we've yeah, got to inter- put They actually
0: introduced in. laws, didn't they? Sumptuary laws. Yeah, one sumptuary laws. Yep, yeah. and that was to mm-hmm. try to keep people in their station because they now have too much money and you can't wear this because that's reserved for nobility and nobody will be able to tell who's important and who's not if you can wear the same (laughs) clothes as us.
1: Exactly. And it's one of those things where you can tell how much money people had for clothes and were willing to spend on clothes because you don't have a law like that if it's not available to people. You know, if you go back to the 7th century, no one is like, hey, look, you can't just go flouncing around in furs. All right. You understand me? By the time you hit the 13th century, 14th century, that very well may be the case. You know, so again, it's a really long period of time, but especially in the late medieval period. They just love to dress up. And, you know, they're not so different from us. We love to dress up now. You know, it's just also we don't dress as brightly.
0: We don't, actually. I think we would Mm-mm. probably be shocked if we went back into some mm-hmm. towns and cities. And it's like, this is so awfully gaudy. And there's a, there's a place in York, I can't remember the name. It's one of the halls in York that they've repainted in the style. <gasps> hall. Oh, yeah, right. And, and if, you, if you go there, the main living hall has enormous vertical stripes of red and green.
1: and and, and painted
0: (laughs) flowers in in various different places all sort of hand done so it's not perfect but you know these these are stripes of bright red that's about a foot across and another stripe of green that's about a foot across and all the walls are covered in this stripe and I'm thinking this is way more gaudy than the most gaudy wallpaper you could ever get in the 1970s I mean it just blows it away for its its shockingness.
1: And I love that about them. You know, I love their complete over-the-topness. And I, I think it's a real shame that it, it doesn't come up a lot of the time. In, so, for example, the medieval film that I uh, and everyone else in the world is hanging out for at the moment, uh Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I guess it's called The Green Knight, this coming out. I'm very excited. I cannot wait to see uh, my very good friend Dev Patel and look at him in a respectful manner. But the thing that I I think that a lot of it is like really true to what the story is like and it's spooky and atmospheric, but then the only shame is again, you've got like, here's the stone wall. Here are the really muted colors. And it's like, I would just love once to see, The bright, stupid colours and, you know, someone wearing a party-coloured pair of hose I would love that. I would love it. I would just lose it.
0: I I would love to see somebody wearing Poulaines, really, really pointed shoes that are... (gasps) I love them. In in, in a way, it looks absurd. I mean, there's a TV show called Blackadder. I I don't know whether you're familiar with it. I love Blackadder, yeah. And and Mm -hmm. what Blackadder was wearing isn't actually absurd. It is actually slightly understated. From all the records we have, he's Because
1: it's black, yes. you know? <laughs> yes.
0: So he was actually being subdued, but his shoes, his crazy hat, you know, his enormous shoulders, they're all actually quite authentic in many ways. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. His
0: pudding bowl haircut is literally cut with a pudding bowl, is is what some of them had if the visual records we have of the time are, are accurate, and I see no reason to think they, they wouldn't be.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that a lot of the written records back it up because you know that's why you see complaints about it, is because people are, are stating, yes, that's what's happening.
0: And the older generation is, as they are today, <laughs> complaining against yes. the younger generation is, is ruining things or their fashions are outrageous or their shoes are too pointed or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Every time, Which yeah. is exactly the same as today. And as you get older, you think, oh... The trousers that young people are wearing sometimes are ridiculous. You go, uh, I'm just saying uh, what they've been saying since ancient times. That's just a sign of age.
1: Exactly. That just means that you're getting on. So, like, never admit it. Yes, Never exactly. admit it.
0: <laughs> um, getting on to warfare as well and showing off a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I was having a discussion with somebody about some particularly flash armour with gold on it and jewellery and everything. And they, they were saying, well, that would have just been for ceremonial purposes. I went, no, I don't think mm-hmm. it would have been. I think the whole point is to show your magnificence on the battlefield.
1: I would agree with that because, um, you know, one of the things that I would have to say about that is who's saying that the battlefield isn't a ceremony. Mm. Part of what you're kind of doing when you're out there, especially if you are from the sort of echelon of society where you have access to a suit of armor like that. Um, what I often liken medieval warfare to, especially for extraordinarily, you know, well-to-do people, is I call it like rich guy tag right because you know the the purpose of war for someone who could have a suit of armor like that is not to necessarily get killed or kill anyone you want to go kidnap someone from the other team who has the same rank so you want to kidnap him you want to hold him ransom and then you're going to get a lot of money out of this look at the number of times an actual king is captured on the battlefield How many times has the French king dragged back to England? You know, this is even happening in the early modern period. You know, Charles V captures Francis and there's this ongoing Valois-Habsburg rivalry and he has him. He's got him right there. And, you know, basically, Francis spends a bunch of time writing poor me letters to his mom. And like, that's what happens. You know, it's not warfare in the way that we think of it, where two people are like, all right, that's it. We're going to kill each other. That's never what's on so you know you go out there and you say yes here I am I am a golden god look at me and uh, unfortunately that, that might get you kidnapped
0: but it protects you in two ways it says I'm wealthy therefore don't kill me because if you kill mm-hmm. me I'm probably worth scrap value and that's not nearly as much as if you yep. are going to ransom me so yes we'll fight and my armor will probably prevent me unless I'm very unlucky from death and this is I think why guns are slow mm. to be adopted because they're a little random, they're very inaccurate, and they will kill mm-hmm. somebody regardless of their social status on the battlefield. But the armor, broadly speaking, will protect you mostly, not always, from of course. that kind of lethal combat, whereas your poor ordinary soldier is getting mown down in waves. And it, it must have been a very different experience. But there oh, are battles where, you know, Agincourt, for example, all the captured yes. French knights the English needed to kill them. But the knights, the men-at-arms, refused to kill them. They had to give it to the lower orders, if you want to call it that way, the archers, to go and slit their throats. And that caused absolute outrage at the time. It was way beyond... I mean, it was a a war crime. What we Mm -hmm. would think of as a war crime back then, you could justify it, arguably, and there will continue to be arguments about it. But it's really interesting, these moments where it's the exceptions that almost prove the rule... And it must be the same for you when you're looking into some of these things about the apocalypse and, and, and mm-hmm. what people are complaining about. Because as you said, there wouldn't be rules unless people were breaking them. They wouldn't need to put the rules in place. Completely. So the apocalypse, this is something I'm relatively unfamiliar with ah. when it comes to the medieval <laughs> period. And I obviously know the book of Revelations and the whole biblical side of things mm-hmm. a little bit. But tell me a bit about that and how that affected the way people... Saw the world, I presumably it ties into plagues as well, oh rather,
1: <laughs> so but you would be surprised how often the apocalypse comes up, and I suppose you know I've already made a generalized reference to this, but you know, for you know what we would call Europeans in the medieval period, you know they're they're christians, and that's that's the thing about them is that they live in Christendom, and one thing that we really tend to forget now is that Christianity is a linear religion, it's positing that there is a beginning, middle, and end to the universe. There was the beginning when God made everything. Jesus came right in the middle, and then we are now in the end bit, and we're waiting for Jesus to come back and for the apocalypse to start. There are all sorts of things that are going to presage the second coming of Jesus. You know, it might be the arrival of Antichrist, who is an almost entirely like extra biblical character that people just kind of made up. It's kind of fan fiction, but it's definitely taken on a life of its own. And then there's the things that are in, you know, the apocalypse. But the thing is, for medieval people who are living, breathing, all the time, you know, Christianity, they don't see this as, you know, a story that is kind of explicative of their world. They see this as absolutely the truth. And for them, you know, when Jesus says, oh, I I will be right back, you won't know the day the hour of my coming, is something that he refers to multiple times in the Gospels. And so they're like, ready for that to happen, Right. So within that context, they're constantly interpreting the signs of the world around them to say, okay, well, now, now is when it's happening. So it's interesting the times that it comes up. So there is a huge tension around the year 1000, for example. So they're like, ah, well, in the in the year 999, everyone's having a freak out. They're like, well, this is surely Jesus is going to come back in the year 1000 because... It's a nice round number, essentially. They really do like uh, numbers to have a kind of a specific meaning. They think about math as a kind of um, divine explication of the world, right? So if you can kind of figure out math, you're kind of thinking like God is. So for them, the year of 1000, that's a really obvious point. And people will point out to things like, oh, do you see these Vikings? They're everywhere. And it's oh, there's these big pagan hordes. That, it refers to the hordes of Gog and Magog who are basically in a lot of the Antichrist theory. And so that's who that is, these bad pagan hordes. And so, oh, clearly God's going to come back and Jesus is going to come back. It's going to be the end of the world. That doesn't happen. Then, you know, anytime there is a famine, that is something that comes up a lot. So the 14th century is absolutely lousy with apocalyptic thinking because in the first place you have the Great Famine. I think it's from 1315 to 1317. If I've got my dates right there. Absolutely terrible. It's very, very cold. It's very, very wet. Two years worth of crops fail and everybody's starving. There you go. You got your famine. So that's one of the horses of the apocalypse, right? And then, oh, who comes along a couple of decades later? It's Pestilence, the Black Death. And you can be forgiven for thinking if, say, you live in Florence and 60% of the population has died of the plague, you could be forgiven for thinking it might be the end of the world.
0: Absolutely. I mean, in a way, we were all living through that in the COVID pandemic. I can understand a little bit more about what it feels like, perhaps. And that's a disease that is killing a minuscule fraction compared to mm-hmm. the black death. And we have ways of treating it, and not for everybody, and of we course. we know what it is. And we know what it is, know. is, and we understand it. You know, We know what transmission is all about. But if 30 to 60% of your colleagues stopped turning up for work because they'd just died of this disease, I don't think any of us would not consider it was the end of the world, actually. I
1: mean... And in many ways, you know, even, you know, under COVID, which is, again, it's a fairly benign pandemic as pandemics go. That's not to say that I don't think, you know, everybody get vaccinated. Wash your hands. Be careful. You know, like, that's not to say that I don't believe that. But one of the things that we can say is that our world has probably irrevocably shifted as a result of this. You know, um, our ways of working have changed probably forever. You know, there are these certain things that have really shifted as a result of that. And with a much more benign pandemic, how much more would that be the case when we're talking about the Black Death, which is, by all accounts, the worst epidemic that the world has ever seen, and it's, uh, it predated
0: so. societal change as well, didn't it? Because uh, I mm-hmm. believe that peasants, uh, yeah, agrarian workers, suddenly realized actually next door needs workers and they're offering to pay us twopence a day instead of one pence a day.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm always, this is one of my favorite things that happens, but at the same time, I always say we have to be really careful about it because you will see kind of in the first place peasants start to say, hang on a minute. I could maybe move. And then there becomes like a big crackdown because they're like, oh, no, the peasants are realizing they could move. <laughs> you know? so, uh, so at first you will say people going, all right, well, that's it. Who's going to stop me? I'm moving down the road and I'm going to go get higher wages. And then at times people are like, no, legally, we will stop you. So there are multiple laws that are promulgated specifically in England to be like, you cannot ask for more money. That is it. There is a line. Then you get the Peasants' Rebellion, much more successful than, you know, a lot of other peasants' rebellions had been, but it is essentially quashed. But then we do see wages, they go up a little bit because everyone's like, remember when the peasants murdered everybody? Okay, we maybe want to keep them happy. But then they stagnate again for like another 150 years. So it's this really interesting push and pull. because although I love the peasants' rebellions, I love peasants generally. I'm a big champion of ordinary people in history because I think that everybody is the most uh, interesting people. But what I think we can really learn from this is what they definitely do is shift the way that people think. So again, you start seeing laws saying you can't pay peasants anymore because someone's getting paid more, right? Again, you wouldn't have a law about it if it wasn't happening because you simply didn't need to before the 14th century. You had, there were plenty of peasants. No one needed to worry about that. Suddenly you're out of peasants. They start realizing their worth. And the shift that it causes also means that peasant rebellions never kind of stop. After the 14th century, there is in kind of like recorded memory up until the 14th century, you only have a handful of peasants rebellions. They're very, very few. And then after the 14th century, they just start happening over and over and over again. And we see as many in about 100 years as we have written down for like the previous thousand. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. So something really shifts in terms of public consciousness after the Black Death. So even if they aren't necessarily what we would call successful, even if we don't say that, you know, yeah, everyone's standard of living rises and continues to rise, what we do see is people saying, well, you know what, actually, I'm not going to take that this is the way that the world is and there's nothing that I can do about it for granted. I'm going to go out and test if this is still the case. And that is something that we can definitely, definitely see shifts completely, you know, until you get stuff like the French Revolution a few hundred years later.
0: Yeah, How did the church react to people getting what, how they would say it, uppity? Did they say, but your place is given by God and therefore you're somehow rebelling against God by wanting to be something other than a agrarian <laughs> worker?
1: This is a really interesting one because, you know, the church, for the most part, especially at the higher echelons, is just drawn from rich people no one who became the pope or no one who becomes a bishop was born a poor boy on a farm. That's just simply not the way the world works. Oftentimes that's somewhere where extraordinarily rich families kind of send their extra sons, especially after primogeniture. So you just kind of like shuffle some along to the church. They can be a bishop. They'll have a great life. That's not necessarily true of parish priests or something like that. But So they do tend to echo sentiments about the idea that the rich are in charge of society for a reason. What the church tends to say is, Not necessarily, oh, well, this is your status in life. Get used to it, you pleb. It's not so much like that. But what they tend to say is, well, you know, none of this really matters. Your next life is what matters. But there will be all kinds of interesting ways of interpreting that. So, for example, I was reading yesterday a sermon by Humbert of Romans, who is uh, telling other priests how to speak to people with leprosy. He says, you know, people with leprosy, they're mad all the time because they have leprosy and they're so upset with God. And, you know, they might turn to sin instead of what they should really be doing, which is being really prayerful and focusing on the fact that, oh, well, in the next life, which is the longer one and the real one, you know, they'll be fine as long as they get their soul together. So they should focus on that. And then he compares them to Job, from the Bible who suffers a lot. And he's like, well, you know, didn't Job suffer much worse than you as someone with leprosy? Because Job was really rich and then he lost everything he had. So that's worse. Then if you're poor and you lose everything, that's not as bad as if you're rich and you lose everything. And if you have leprosy and you get sick, that's not as bad as like, you know, something bad happening to a rich, well-bodied person. And he literally just puts it down there. And I was reading it like Humbert. What are you talking about? You know, you're just saying that, like, in theory, just so you know, um, some rich guy who lived 100 years ago had it worse than you because he was rich. So have you considered that? So there is that kind of way of thinking. But what the church really tries to get everybody to do is focus on the next life. But part of the reason that they do that is because they're drawn from these very high echelons of society and they have a stake in the matter. It's not quite as much as you see from for example, royalty themselves, who are very much like, yes, yes, I am anointed by God. Oh, and by the way, I am descended from a mythological figure. So I've got that going for me. Uh, and I'm simply different from you people, you know, so the very, very well-to-do secular people will really lean on that God has anointed me, whereas the church never wants to give them too much of that either, because the church also might want to come in at any time and make you not the emperor or make you no longer the king, you know, the church reserves the right to excommunicate you and get someone else in. They're a little much more reticent about that. Their focus is the next life.
0: But I wondered whether one could chart a sort of philosophy of thinking of the sort of the Peasants' Revolt, the Black Death, people starting to realise their worth, all the way through to the, the schism in Christianity where you do start to have parish priests who don't think things are anointed. You know, it's clear that stuff yes. is a bit random. And it eventually, after several hundred years of thought and, and sort of shuffling of social conscience, you get mm-hmm. to the stage of the, of the rejection of the sort of Catholic Church and the rise of the Protestant Church.
1: Oh, I mean, this is... By bread and butter. So, you know, this is a very this is very exciting to me because, again, this is one of the apocalyptic signs that people point to. The Great Schism and, you know, having your Pope and your anti-Pope in Roman Avignon. I think the highest number of Popes you ever get is three. They tried to get at a point in time, they were like, all right, look, we're just going to cancel out the Pope in Rome and the Pope in Avignon. And we're just going to elect this new Pope and then he's going to be the Pope. But then obviously the Roman and Avignon Popes were like, no, we're not going to do that. So then you had a third Pope in Pisa for a little while. And eventually it all dies out. But yes, you certainly do see this. And so, um, one of my great loves, and uh, one of the groups that I'm really interested in studying, the Hussites, they really kind of move on from this. And you know, so in the first place, they are really a kind of post-plague sort of grouping because certainly there are nobles involved in the movement. There are certainly church people. You know, Jan Hus obviously was a was a priest himself before he comes up with this this new uh, form of Christianity, uh, and then gets burned at the stake for his trouble as one does. But it's also this really kind of like social conglomeration. So you have lots of peasants who are involved, you have lots of townspeople, some forms of Hussites. So for example, uh, the Taborites, who are focused on the uh, bohemian town of Tabor, they kind of try to start a form of communism along with their Hussitism. So what they're saying is they have to take a very kind of um. An interpretation of Christianity is that society should be equal and there's enough stuff for everybody. This idea of a hierarchy that's promulgated by the Catholic Church in and of itself is problematic because it's saying that humans need to be striated out in this particular way, whereas they could be in one moment. So I would say absolutely these things are connected. Um, And, you know, there's all kinds of Hussites who write about this. So Chalchitsky writes this sort of a thing. People tend to ignore the Hussites because nobody wants to learn Czech. But if an entire kingdom that is like integral to the, it's the richest kingdom in the Holy Roman Empire in the 15th century when all this goes down as well, because it's got multiple silver mines. It's one of the most important kingdoms in Christendom. And they're like, no, we're off. You know, and I think there's something like, um, five crusades are called against them and the church loses them all.
0: This is this is the um. thing that people don't realise. There were quite a lot of crusades within what we think of mm-hmm. geographical Europe. I mean, there were yep. there was the Albigensian Crusade as well, which mm-hmm. is largely about money and land. Yes, uh, yes. And then the Hussite one, which has perhaps got a bit more about philosophy and church in it, but also the Hussites they they innovated a lot of battle strategies yes. as well, didn't yes, they? they? So that's fascinating. It's almost the beginnings. Well, presumably, it is considered the beginnings of Protestantism in some ways. Mm-hmm. But also possibly the Protestant work ethic, which is perhaps separate from the religious side, which is we can fix things and make things and invent new mm-hmm. things. Uh, and they had war wagons, didn't they? They literally yeah. had, had cannon and guns inside wagons drawn by horses and they would make them into lines and circles. And uh, yes. it was much more of a ordinary soldier kind of medieval, but really not medieval anymore.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, this is the thing. It's It's quite interesting because... There's lots to be said for, you know, and arguments can be had for years and years and years about the conception of the military revolution in the early modern period, but you begin to see things like the Wagenberg technique. You know, our good friend Jan Zizka, he comes up with this and there is a lot of hand wringing again from the sort of people who are wearing fancy gold armor about this, where they're like, who, are these guys will not come out from behind these wagons. And then, you know, the host sites are like, yeah, now you're all dead, <laughs> you know. And so we have a lot of written records to indicate that women are fighting as host sites. And a lot of the times, um, also are a little bit more violent about things like there will be specific records where women are like no we're killing all of these people and the guys are like ladies ladies slow down and they're like no we're going to kill them you see all of these things that are very unusual in terms of the way medieval warfare works within that system and so as someone who kind of is a is a czech specialist for me, that's kind of like the line between uh, medieval and early modern is I'm like, well, how many Hussites do you have on the ground? Because for me, the minute the Hussites have like one, I'm like, boom, okay, that's it. The medieval period is over and we're early modern now. That's not how everybody sees things, but it just depends on what do you work on, you know, like what is your area? I know people who uh, specialize in the Iberian Peninsula and they'll say, oh, well, the early modern period is over when the Reconquista is complete. And all of the Muslims are kicked... Well, they're not all kicked out. There is the small matter of the uh, Inquisition to happen in the early modern period as a result. But when Ferdinand and Isabella take over everything, they go, well, that's it. You know, here we are in the 1490s and it's the early modern period now. Obviously, that can be really different here in England because a lot of people are like, "Mm, I don't know, the Tudors. So it just, place to place, it can all be really different. But one of the things that I think makes that true for um the Czech lands is the ways that hussites are fighting it's just totally different
0: and it's perhaps the philosophy behind the fighting as well that that people are Mm. genuinely fighting to defend their land defend their way of life and and actually Mm -hmm. kill the others and when you refer to it at the beginning the there was a sort of medieval concept of battles as display you went in there to show how brilliant you were you had your bright armor you had your fantastic warhorse banners everywhere and you were sort of looking magnificent well also killing as well but killing wasn't the mm-hmm. main thing. There were, obviously, Towton, for example, a massive number of slaughters. But often you get the feeling that a lot of medieval battles were quite performative. They were quite mm-hmm. about display. And the Hussites come along and say, no, no, we're going to stay here behind our wooden walls and we're going to shoot the crap out of you. And you're going to be dead and nobody's yeah. going to worry about you anymore. And it's always, nobody ever woke up. I mean, I often say this. People say, when, when is the medieval period? It's like, well... It depends... It fizzles. Nobody ever, literally, ever woke up and went, "Oh, I'm not medieval anymore. I'm Tudor. I better change the shape of my shoes." You know, it was like, "No, it's not how it happened."
1: And it's the same thing, you know, with you know the end of the Roman period. You couldn't go up to someone who lived in "quote unquote" Rome in 476 and say, "Oh, well, what's it like to be medieval now? Now that the Roman Empire has fallen?" They would have been like, "What are you talking about?" Yes, they don't care about that. It's this; these are things that historians do to history. You know, periodization is something that we do to it to make things a little bit easier. And so, you know. For me, the term medieval is useful because what I'm kind of signaling to people is, you know, I kind of mean between then and then, but it's a how long is a piece of string sort of thing because these same terms can really apply to a different period in different places. And we're never exactly spot on about what that means. And I think that that's really the work of historians a lot of the time is just, you know, constantly redefining what we mean, constantly saying, okay, well, given this then this might be true, we could use this word. You know, half of it is just sitting around and arguing about a word, you know?
0: I did always wonder whether sort of, there's a transitional period of three generations, i.e. you have children who remember you, and remember growing up with you in a certain way, and then they have Mm. children and they remember you telling them about stories of your grandparents. And then by the time you're, you're the fourth generation, your great-grandparents are so far in the past that it's not really relevant anymore. And I wonder whether yeah. one could ever look at things like that as it's just like, to go from Roman to medieval would have to be at least three generations before anybody went, actually, I am slightly different than my great-grandparents, you know, when they yes. self-realise it. But you could also look at technology as well, can't you? So, for mm-hmm. example, I'm fascinated by the slow adoption of black powder guns, They appear as handguns in sort of 1380s-ish but don't really form a decisive component of warfare for another 100 years, 150 years, possibly 200 years. Why? Were they expensive, unreliable? Well, we know they were noisy and unreliable, so...
1: Yeah, there's something, I think, because they're quite expensive and unreliable, I think that they, again, kind of get into the sort of the medieval way of thinking about warfare. So, you know, one of the things that you're doing in terms of display is also showing your prowess, right, on the battlefield. So if you're a king and you get into it with another king and you best him and everyone is like, oh, wow, he has got pike skills, you know, or something like that, then this is something that very much, like, adds to your fama, your reputation. A gun, there's no, like, skill as of yet, right? Because they're just not accurate enough. So it's not one of those things yet. Obviously, it does become a thing where being a marksman with a gun is considered a skill. But because you can't be a marksman with a gun at this point in time, it's almost like, well, there's nothing you can brag about. There's nothing there that you can say, okay, well, I am a really expert military tactician and you can see this and we do see you know obviously cannon become much more popular before individual guns do and that's because well you don't need to be that accurate do you
0: just shoot at that big lump of men there exactly you
1: know? and so i think that it is the kind of one-on-one-ness that it's the more personal nature of a gun combined with the fact that there's no way to show off about it mm. if that makes sense
0: yeah literally no bragging rights somebody's dead with a no. hole in them for a piece of lead And nobody really knows who did it. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of all over and there's nothing to write a saga about. You know, you can't imagine the Vikings writing about, you know, Olaf was shot, (laughs) you know. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Vikings want to write a saga about a three day punch up with a half dead man. That's what they want, you know, and there's no glory.
0: Olaf stood there in his medieval armor and then somebody shot him and he fell down dead. That's not a sign. Who
1: shot him? We don't know. Were they aiming directly at him? No, they were aiming for Snorri. Oh.
0: It's the opposite of heroic in a way, isn't it?
1: (laughs) It is. It is.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say because you wanted to talk about jousting a little bit. And jousting obviously was a display of uh, wealth and skill Mm -hmm. that was done quite a long way post medieval. The the Tudors were jousting, and and in Elizabeth's time, they were jousting as well. So it kept going for quite a long time, and it appears to have been very popular.
1: Yeah, so we kind of see it begin to take off, like tournaments in general start kind of taking off again in the late medieval period, which, so the 14th century, this is a big thing. So if, say, you want to get on the good side of the people, one of the ways that you can do that is by holding a tournament. So, for example, when Princess Anne of Bohemia comes over to uh, marry Edward and become the queen here, everyone in England is really... They're not particularly pleased about this, because basically, Princess Anne being bohemian and an empress, bless them, the the Czechs didn't even know where England was. They were like, who? Who's that? Yes. What's in English? Basically, uh, Duke Spirinev had to go check out that England was a real place, and they're like, do they speak any languages? Oh, God, no. They've got French, and then there's this other, I think they say it's English, I don't know, and everyone was like, well, you shouldn't be sending an empress over there, that doesn't seem right, but they were trying to make some inroads like in order to flex on the French, and so it happens. The downside of this is that for English people is because Bohemia is so much more important, um, Princess Anne doesn't have a dowry. Because she's married massively down. The English are furious about this. But it ends up being a famous love match, interestingly. And one of the things that Anne does in order to win everybody over is she holds a massive tournament for a couple of weeks. She's like, look, okay, I see that you're all mad. I'm paying for a tournament. And everyone just loses their minds. And it's very distracting for them. And they love this. So it's just kind of like, you know, everybody sort of gets the day off work. Market vendors notwithstanding, they make some very good money because everybody wants to eat, you know, while they're they're seeing the tournament. Everybody gets drunk. They have a bit of a make out with a stranger and they have a great time. There are some rich people who are in armor. That's great. You know, that's kind of the main entertainment, but it's sort of everything that's around it as well. And again, we see a lot of sort of hand wringing on the part of the church about uh, tournaments they will say things like, well, there is a possibility that you could die in a tournament and you're doing it for no reason, right? You're just doing it to be a show off if you're a knight. So this is kind of tantamount to suicide as far as the the church is concerned. So for them, if you die, they say, well, you'll go to hell, you'll go to purgatory and you'll need to earn your way out if you die in a tournament because you are recklessly gambling with your life. For what? So that everyone can have a good time. But the rich people are like, yes. We absolutely are. And everybody loves that. It's actually one of the only ways that royalty and nobility have to make inroads with the common population. It's spread in circuses, right? Only instead of circuses, it's tournaments. But it is a specific late medieval thing. It's kind of like late 13th century to the 14th century. This isn't something that's going to come up. In the ninth century, for example. It's just there's no no real idea of things in the same way.
0: I always wondered whether the quote ordinary people actually quite liked watching the possibility of the the nobility killing each other. (laughs) I bet. I, I imagine imagine like,
1: the, the guy who won't let you move down the road, or the the guy you have to pay a fee to in order to get married to the person that you want. You know, like it gets knocked off his horse. You're like, yeah, have at it. You know,
0: it's that's great. Everybody would have been drunk. Everybody would have been. God knows what would have been going on. But it was like the the most massive open air air festival for days. Mm-hmm. Everybody's oh, letting yeah. off steam. The rich people are potentially going to kill each other, which is even more exciting. Displays of wealth and chaos is going on. It must have just been, think of the most impressive music festival you've ever been to. And add (laughs) add some combat sports, add add it multiple days. I mean, it's like Glastonbury, but much, much tougher and much more unusual. You
1: know, people get hyped now for jousting yes, you know even I mean, obviously it's part of it is all the anachronism but it's very very cool well of so... course I,
0: I do it so you know actually being in armor and jousting mm. and, and by jousting for real i mean real solid wooden lances do you, with yeah, metal do you have pinch. like an
1: oak lance and everything yeah. i was gonna ask i've, you I've
0: never this. jousted with oak it's always been pine it's always been pine okay, yeah, yeah, that yeah. we use and it usually shatters uh, yeah, I was
1: going to say, safer.
0: Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> uh, again, we don't really know what they use. We certainly wouldn't use Ash, because the, I think uh, I came across some reference to Ash if you want to kill a man, because it's mm. springy. And the thing with jousting is if the if the lance shatters on your opponent, mm-hmm. all the energy is released in the lance shattering. So it's not so much right. of a big it's a big hit, but it's very survivable if you're always good. Yep. If the lance doesn't break it bends and then it comes back out into you as well. So the biggest accidents oh. I've ever had are when the lances haven't shattered.
1: Right.
0: Because the energy's got to go somewhere, and it goes back into extending the lance. so And that means you two of you are passing each other and it gets hooked up under your arm, under your chin, mm. and then you can't see because you don't know what's going on. And so physics takes over and physics becomes mm-hmm. chaotic. Um, and you haven't got a clue until you potentially hit the ground or the other guy hits the ground or well, you get to the end. Somebody said, well, what's it like to, to joust? I said, well, you can see the opponent, you can see the opponent, you accelerate, and then you see sky, sky, and then you can see <laughs> uh, the end the end of the lists. Because if you're hit, or you hit, you tilt backwards slightly. You don't tilt backwards right. before you hit, because you're concentrating, you're leaning forward, and you're focused on where the lance is going. As mm-hmm. soon as there's impact, either from you on them, or both, or them on you, you're tilted back slightly, and... You can only see sky. Wow. So the, the worst yeah. views of anybody in the joust are the two jousters. I have a question Yes,
1: yes. about uh, jousting equipment for this. So are there specific saddles then that are used for jousting? Like, would you have something that's got, you know, a higher back as a result? Yes, you,
0: yes, you do. I mean, the medieval war saddle, it, it changes during the development of jousting. There are types of jousting in uh, Germany, for example, where they deliberately don't have backs on the saddles. and and the idea there and they don't really seem to have much in the way of leg armor and they have very thick lances and we think nobody's as far as i'm aware reenacted that we think the idea there is to smash the other person backwards off the horse because that makes much more sense if you've got a high-backed what's effectively a sort of 15th century 14th century war saddle it goes around your hips a little bit so low down around your but keeps you in the saddle but you can flex backwards so you're, oh. you bend from the waist backwards and you can actually go all the way down to the horse's rump and then sit back up again because of the design of the saddle. So you can actually be held in. The dangers are when you're lifted up and twisted.
1: Right. OK. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the
0: times I've knocked people off the saddle, the lance seems to have gone in and lifted them slightly. And they've Mm -hmm. hit me and lifted themselves slightly and depending on where the horses are. Because if the two horses are going together but if one horse is going at a different stride, which is impossible to anticipate, if you get it right slash wrong, depending on your perspective, you actually lift them out of the saddle and twist them over back. So you typically fall you rotate through, you know, (sighs) ninety degrees and fall off the other side of the horse sort of off the right so you don't go backwards like they do in hollywood you don't you don't fall backwards over the saddle mm. you sort of twist and fall out the back over your right shoulder so Oof, on-
1: that's scary yeah, it's so yeah.
0: scary the, the only other accident i've seen in jousting uh and we've seen this in illustrations is when the hit is so big that both horses stop
1: oh yes i've definitely seen illustrations of
0: that yes so where, like, the, where they're like whoa and it, all the energy is dissipated in the lance impact, and everybody's suddenly gone from a fast canter to stationary, and everybody's very surprised. And one guy, one guy I saw doing it, was so surprised that he leant forwards and fell down uh, on the on the left hand side of the front left hand shoulder of his horse because his his helmet was so heavy. He wondered what had happened. He leant down and he kept falling, and he fell down on the left hand side which I've seen in an illustration. I can't, I can't find it recently, but I've definitely seen somebody falling forwards on that side. And I was very curious as to how that would happen. But the physics, it seems to yeah. occasionally happen, which is really interesting.
1: See, this is the thing, right? I am someone who just, like, sits around doing medieval history all day. And I am absolutely fascinated by this. Like, for me, if I came upon, if someone said, oh, by the way, there's going to be, like, a days-long jousting match, I'd be like, well, I guess I'm dropping everything. (laughs) This is what's happening for me. You know, and I would be the person who would, in theory, be kind of, like, most blasé. About this, you know, this is, this is so cool. This is so much fun. You know, even if people are not necessarily going to get hurt, which they can, Mm. right? Obviously, as you've made very, very clear, you know, the worst it's going to be is like watching WrestleMania or something like that, which is quite fun. So you can see where the appeal lies because what's going to happen? You literally don't know. It doesn't matter how incredibly skillful people are. There can be what's the cadence of the horse. How there are all these varying factors that play into it. So it's so surprising and interesting. And let's remember, this is a world where you don't even have television yet. So this might be like one of the most exciting things that ever happens to you in your life. Mm. And, you know, that's why I'm interested in them. I love, you know, the TV-ness of it.
0: Yeah, but uh, but as you say, you, you're you also jousting with wooden lances. And here's a little... Mm-hmm. I was jousting down at Pendennis, which is down in Cornwall. It's a castle down mm. there. Uh, Henry VIII built a fort there as well. And as and a jousting there... We put the lances out overnight on the Saturday night because we were jousting on the Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Sunday morning, we couldn't break a single lance and we were trying to work out what was going on. The sea mist had come in and it was very misty overnight and the wood of all the lances, rather than being kind of brittle and dry, had Mm. got soaked in the mist and was very slightly damp and it didn't break. I've got pictures of the lances bending through (laughs) 90 degrees and straightening again. And it was so frustrating. It was only afterwards when we thought about it. What was different? It was the atmosphere, the fact that, well, it hadn't been rained on, but the mist had soaked into the wood sufficiently to make it more flexible. And this would have happened back then. You know, if your lances were out in the rain, if your squire hadn't bothered or got drunk and hadn't put your lances away in the tent properly, you come in the morning and they're flexible and they're really annoying. And all these little tiny things, suddenly you realise quite a lot of skill went into the preparation the ground crew the people supporting the knight to do his jousting these days we have tiny crews really but if you were nobility mm-hmm. you would have dozens of people looking on yeah after a whole retinue you you, you yeah. literally and it, they would be very proud of you you're the you're the point man you're the you're the lance uh, you're the one who's getting all the show offy stuff but you've got this ground crew this pit crew much like formula 1 yeah, the drivers think- get all the platitudes but there's huge amount of technology that goes behind it and, and engineering.
1: Of course. And it is that engineering that kind of makes this possible. And it's the very similar spectacle as well. You know, the people who are interested in it, you know, the majority of people who watch Formula 1, they're never going to get in a car. No. Right? You may drive a car, so you've got some idea of what it might be like. So it's the same thing with jousting. It's like, well, yeah, you may ride a horse... Mm. So you've got some idea of like one of the aspects but you know that this is like so far and beyond and away from what your ordinary expectation of mm. life is that that's what contributes to the theatricality of it.
0: And you liken it a little bit to sort of wrestling, professional wrestling yes. which is physical but is also as I understand it, partly scripted Is somebody's got to win. (laughs) How (laughs) dare So I'm led to believe, you know. Um. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. I mean, so obviously it's not scripted in that same way, but, you know, you kind of have like your team and, you know, especially in the kind of early modern period, you know, you get into some of the 16th century, you know, um, the outfits that they wear and and the incredible armor and, you know, what the horses will be wearing. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, you have that same kind of, level of pageantry and yeah you do kind of have the almost scriptedness of wrestling in that you know um you've got these teams and narratives emerge from it mm. but these people are all within the same social circles they don't hate each other they want to joust each other right so it's like it's one of these things where everybody's agreed to sign up for this kind of mock combat and yeah. i mean it's only mock in that you know well no one's trying to kill anyone but it might happen you know same thing with um professional wrestlers is they're doing really extraordinary physical work and you know it is a sport that is real like in order to do those things everybody has to be working together they have to practice very hard but you know it's for the they're, benefit they're, of everyone they're
0: aware of the spectacle they're, they're very aware mm-hmm. of the spectacle i'm aware that in some museums again in germany that they have things like clockwork or explosive charges and elements to the armor that if you hit it in the right place the thing sort of shatters and, and goes yeah. off in a spectacular way so they were genuinely designing armor to be spectacular when struck mm-hmm. which is fascinating because it shows you people spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on looking great in the joust and, and yeah. so it must have been an important and an important spectacle to see so humanity hasn't really changed this is one yeah. of the key things i think for both of us is that if we went back into the medieval period we'd probably be fascinated, but more or Mm -hmm. less the same people that we are today, perhaps. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Was there anything you wanted to round up with? How, How do people find out more about, you've got your book... Are there any other ways of sort of finding out about your work that you want to Yes, share? absolutely. So I've got um, a whole blog, which is
1: going-medieval.com, where I write uh, basically essays about whatever takes my fancy, really. Uh, but it's mostly, it's usually things where how stuff that happened now is like a medieval thing spoiler alert. Um, but there are any number of things on there. So I've got essays about um, how medieval people bathed is uh, the one that I end up getting everyone to, to read It's very important to me. Um, you know, but it can be either that or, you know, I've got things about the Antichrist. I've got things about sexuality. Check it out. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Going Medieval.
0: Fabulous. Thank you very much. I, I feel like we could keep talking for about another we four hours. On this. <laughs> um, I, would, I would love to talk to you again about stuff. We haven't done anything about the sexuality side of things and bathhouses and, and the, mm. the, the concept of sexuality in medieval times, but we will come to that another time because it's, a, absolutely. it's deserving of its own whole podcast. But that was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure.